All right, well, this is our last week in our series, White Picket Fences, and we have spent these weeks hopefully debunking the myth that there is such thing as a perfect family. There are no perfect relationships. We talked about that week one. There's no perfect kids, contrary to what some of you might think. There's no perfect parents. We discussed that last week. And today we're going to see decisively that there are no perfect marriages. And while we can safely say that there are no perfect marriages, we can also say that there are some great marriage relationships. I'm thankful for that. I saw on Facebook this week, don't look at Facebook a whole lot, all right? But I saw on Facebook this week, all right, and I'm not going to embarrass this couple, but it was their anniversary this week. And their daughter put a picture up there of her parents. And she said, these two people are something to the effect of the most in love people that I've ever seen. Okay, that's who it was, right? Right there. All right. Those are dites right there. All right. In spite of you, Bill, she has stuck with you. But no, seriously, I want you guys to know, I loved that. I loved that. I just loved it. I loved it that a kid said, my mom and dad love each other. They're crazy about one another. That's the way it ought to be. And there are no perfect marriages, but there can be great marriages. And that's the way that God designed it to be from the beginning. Now, I want you to understand at the outset here this morning, for those of you that love exposition, I do. That's my first love. We're going to dive into 1 Corinthians next week, all right? This is a topical series. We're going to hit some high points in Scripture, some key Scriptures that talk about the principles which we're, we're dealing with this morning. It's not meant to be an expositional series. We're doing 35 minutes here this morning on marriage, all right? I'm not going to do justice to the whole topic, all right? I get that. I'm going to leave some things out. But I want to dive in and hopefully convince you at the end that if you're here this morning and you're struggling, I mean, you're right to the point where you want to call it quits. I hope that you find hope this morning. And you realize what God so desperately wants to do is to restore your marriage relationship. Now, here's the problem with marriage. God made men and women in his image, but they are very, very different, men and women. In fact, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, I read that verse and I go, Well, since we were both created in the image of God, then there should not be any problems, Right? She ought to see things exactly the way that I see things. And that's just not the way that it is. I, I figured that. In fact, someone said this. What women want is to be loved, to be listened to, to be desired, to be needed, to be trusted, and sometime, sometimes just to be held. What men need? Tickets for the World Series. That's what we need. Right? I mean, I'm really that simple. I really am that simple. You get me certain things, you do certain, one certain thing for me, and I'm good. I'm really relatively low maintenance if you do just a few little things. Women, on the other hand, they're complicated, right? When you think you've done exactly what you need to do, you realize, no, no, you haven't. There's something else that you need to do too. Something which is nonverbal. It has not been spoken. It wasn't put on a list so that you were told what to do. You're supposed to figure it out, right? Men and women are different. In his book, Love and Respect, Emerson Eggerts refers to men as wearing blue sunglasses, blue hearing aids, and speaking through blue megaphones. He contrasts men by describing women as wearing pink sunglasses, pink hearing aids, and speaking through pink megaphones. His point is that we are very different and we also communicate in a much different way. He illustrated his point this way. She says, 
I don't have anything to wear, which interpreted means I want some new clothes, right? You figure that out after a few years of marriage. He says, I don't have anything to wear. What he means is all my clothes are dirty, right? <laughs> Same exact words. We are communicating something very differently. She says, this is the worst meal I've ever cooked. He says, no, it's not. Now think about it. <laughs> Where's that going to go? Men, are you with me? Have you found yourself in those situations where you go, it doesn't matter what I say. There is no correct answer here. I'm doomed. That difference, by the way, is even expressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a great passage on the marriage relationship that we've talked about in days gone by at Northwest and we will talk about again, I'm sure. But Paul is giving instructions to the church at Ephesus and he's instructing husbands and wives. And in Ephesians 5.33, he says, However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice what the text says. The, the husband is to love his wife. In fact, if you were to look at the whole text, he's literally supposed to be willing to give up his life for his wife. Right? He's supposed to die for her, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. That sounds painful, right? That's what a husband is supposed to do. The wife is to respect her husband. Do you ever wonder why husbands were told to love their wives and not specifically told to respect them? And why women were told to respect their husbands, but not necessarily specifically to love them? The reason is because God knows that we are wired differently. He created men and women to be different. And here's what I want to say at the outset. We need to celebrate that men and women are different. Okay? That's okay. We're living in a culture that does not celebrate that there is a difference between men and women. And it's more than just physical. There are big differences. God created us to be different. And men, we shouldn't be frustrated and, and, and bent out of shape because our wife is different from us. We ought to celebrate that. I'm so glad that my wife is different than me. Okay. I just expected sarcastic amens all over the crowd just then, all right? I'm glad about that. And, and guess what? Whether you believe this or not, she's glad that I'm not just like her. We are very, very different people. And I want to say at the outside that we need to respect that and honor that and, and celebrate that. Women need to be told and shown that they are loved. Men need to know that they're respected by their wives. Men and women are different. I don't understand. If, by the way, if you, uh, if you haven't read the book, The Five Languages of Love, that's like a book that's kind of like a must read if you're going to have a relationship with another person. You just need to know, you just need to understand what your love language is, and it will help you immensely, especially husbands, if you can't figure it out. If you go out and buy a new car and you think, hey, look, I bought us a new car, and she doesn't feel loved, you don't know her love language, right? Because I think if you go out and buy me a new car, I am all about loving you, all right? Because that is... That's how it's expressed to me. Uh, if you go and do something, Diana, if I go sit next to her on the sofa and hold her hand, man, I have scored big time. I don't get that at all, right? I mean, I, I'm quite frankly not really that interested in just sitting on the couch and holding hands with their arms around each other. I mean, we got married so that we could do more than just that. So I'm not really just interested in just doing that, right? But for her, her love language, physical touch. So you put your arm around her, sitting at church, and I'm going to, Things are good, right? Why? Because we are different. We're wired differently. Now, as a pastor, 
I've had a front row seat to a lot of weddings, a lot of weddings. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years and I've been, I just had that front row seat. In fact, there are some of you right here this morning. I've done your wedding. And, and my view in front of the bride and groom is great. Nobody has a better view than I do. Nobody hears the things that I hear, which sometimes I don't really want to hear. All right. As they're, as they're staring into each other's eyes and they're looking at each other. And as a guy now who's been married 25 years, I'm looking at him going, you have no clue what you're doing. <laughs> He's looking at her going, you are so perfect in every single way. God has created you for me and I can't imagine loving you more than I love you at this particular moment. And, and they're just looking at each other, you know, staring in each other's eyes, a tear every now and then. And, and sometimes they're whispering little things and I'm thinking, you have no clue. You have no clue. Because reality is going to set in that marriage is difficult. In fact, they stand in front of me and they repeat these words. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And I've never had a bride or a groom stop me and go, whoa, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, that richer for poorer. I'm only interested in richer, just so you know that, right? Never once have they, have they, have they said that. Hey, the sickness and in health, as long as you're healthy, I'm there. I'm with you. I'll be right there. We'll be a partnership. But if you get sick, I don't really do well with, you know, blood and buckets and all that kind of stuff. So you might be on your own. Nobody's ever stopped me. They just repeat it. Just one right after the other, they repeat it. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Now pronounce us husband and wife so we can go on our honeymoon. That's what they do. All those promises and dreams at the wedding, and yet according to most research, more than 50% of the people that would say, I do today, eight years from now, will not be sleeping in the same bed. Why is that? How do you go from the incredible dreams at the wedding to divorce several years later, or at the very best, simply tolerating one another under the same roof? Are you ready for a profound answer? Here it is, right? Write this down. For those of you Twitter people, tweet this, all right? Here's why. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. You could, you could substitute stuff for life happens, right? Thing, things like this. You realize that he or she is not as perfect as you thought before you were married. And so you're disappointed. I can remember getting back from our honeymoon and I'm sharing a bathroom with a woman for the first time. You know, I, I was the only boy in our home. I really wasn't used to being around girls and their stuff and all their, you know, I, I didn't understand certain stuff and why they had certain stuff and why they were doing this thing with whatever the thing was that they were doing with their eyelashes. You could poke yourself. That's what my grandmother told me. I didn't understand a lot of stuff. She, she would not screw the toothpaste top on totally. It frustrated me. She didn't put the lid to the toilet seat down or to the toilet down. And I went, why, why, why can't you do it? I mean, right away. I had expectations. The cap would be all the way on the toothpaste and the lid would always be down on the toilet and we would not have stuff all over the place. I'm pretty low. I don't have very much stuff. I mean, you give me a little razor and some deodorant, I'm good to go. I don't even really need the razor on most days. You realize that they're not as perfect as you thought they were. You start having money issues. By the way, it's not always just that you don't have enough of it. Sometimes it's the management of what you have. One or both of the spouses, husband and or wife, are unfaithful in the marriage relationship. There's job pressures, unrealistic or unmet expectations. I think that's a huge one. 
I think we enter into marriage thinking, man, this is going to be like this. And, and sometimes I'm going to fix him. I'm going to fix her. Yeah, he's got a little bit of rough edges, but I'm going to fix him. Uh, single women that are here today, let me just tell you something, free of charge. You are not going to fix him. You're not going to. Right, Diana? You're not going to fix him. Now, he, he will, if he's, a, if he's a follower of Jesus, he'll, he'll be more closely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as he grows. But pretty much, you're not going to fix him. His little quirky stuff that he does, he's going to do, right? Some of you have been married a long time ago, going, yeah, that's exactly what it is. He's speaking the truth. I want to get up and stand up and shout right now and just tell these people, don't, you're not going to. So make sure, make sure that your expectations are realistic. There's also the challenges and pressures of raising kids or, or even of being able to have kids. And some people, here's the truth of the matter, some people just simply change their minds. In fact, I think that that's true a lot of times. Some people just simply change their minds. They decide they want something else. They deserve something else. And so they decide that they're just going to exit the marriage. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you six characteristics of thriving marriages and six contrasting characteristics of failing marriages. And if you're here this morning and you're married, I want you to evaluate your marriage relationship based on these principles, based on these characteristics. If you're single, this is where you should take some notes and use this as a good barometer now or in the future as to whether or not you should actually be in a relationship with that person if you want to enjoy a thriving marriage rather than be in a failed marriage. All right? I'm going to give them to you real quickly. All right? There's six of them. Number one. First characteristic of a thriving marriage is Jesus is number one. He's first. Now, you know, you think, you know, I'm in a church and I'm talking about marriage, so we can just assume that, right? I don't think we can just assume it. In marriages that are thriving, Jesus is number one. Like, 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 like husbands and wives talk about what God's doing. They talk about spiritual things. They talk about, by the way, the spiritual development of their kids, and they have concerns about the spiritual development of their kids. Jesus is number one. Jesus is not just an ornament. I'm fearful, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, uh, because then I'll be in rough shape here in just a few minutes, but I'm fearful that for many of us in churches all across this country, in good evangelical churches, Jesus has become nothing more than an ornament. He's just something that we kind of attach there, kind of like putting a wreath on the front door, like a little, a little picture, a little memento in our home to Jesus. In thriving marriages, Jesus is much more than that. He is number one. Husbands and wives talk about spiritual things. They're, in, they're, they're concerned about the spiritual development of, of their kids. They're involved in a church ministry. They don't just simply attend, they're involved. They're not just simply spectators. They're off the bleachers, they're onto the field, they're involved. They got a place of ministry, they're serving, they're all in, they love each other because they realize that we're supposed to love one another as Christ loved the church and Christ loves the church and they love the church and they're, they're involved in it and Jesus is number one in their lives. In failing marriages, Jesus has either lost his rightful place, he never had his rightful place, at the very least, he is just simply an ornament. Thriving marriages, Jesus is first. If there's one of you here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior and your spouse does, you may think you have a great marriage. And you may have some of the characteristics of a great marriage, but the greatest way to ensure yourself of a great marriage is for both husband and wife to have a thriving, growing personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Growing relationship with Jesus Christ. All right? That's number one. Number two, 
Second characteristic of thriving marriages is that both people are all in. They give 100%. It's interesting that, that we hear talk about relationships and we talk about 50-50, right? You give 50%, I give 50%. We kind of meet in the middle and together we have 100%. Here's the problem with that. When's the last time you gave 50% to something and you were successful? How about kids, how about going to school tomorrow and going, hey, I got half the answers right. I mean, that's pretty good, right? Would your teacher go? Give you a whizzy button, take it home to your mom, let her wear it for a day too. That's great. You got 50% of the answers right. They'd go, no, you failed, right? You get an F, you failed. The same thing is true in marriage relationships. Failed marriages, at best, they give 50-50. And I'll give 50%, you give 50%, or there's one that gives more and the other one just sits back and takes. In thriving marriages, both people are all in. They give 100%. That's called, by the way, Agape love. Agape love is the love that Jesus has for you and for me. It's not based on merit. It's not based on the good things that we've done or can do for him. He just simply chooses to love us. And that's the kind of love, by the way, that we are to have in our marriage relationships. Agape love. We are all in. I am going to serve you. I am, I am going to minister to you. I am going to love you 100% whether I get anything back in return. For some of you, immediately when I say that, that it just gristles, right? I have my rights. Because we live in a culture like that, right? I have my, I deserve. In thriving marriages, both parties give 100%. In failing marriages, at best, it's 50-50. Number three, thriving marriages, get this. Husbands, pay attention, write this down. Thriving marriages, husbands and wives talk. They talk. That's good, right? They talk. In, in failing marriages, they talk only about the things that are necessary, and oftentimes those conversations end in arguments. There's one person on the planet that I'll, I'd tell anything to, and that's my wife. I tell her stuff I'm sure she doesn't want to hear. She sits there and listens to me. Sometimes I've, you know, in just a few weeks, we're going to be married 25 years. And sometimes I'm looking at her and I go, I know she knows I'm crazy right at this particular moment. I know that she knows that what I'm saying, I don't really believe. I know that she knows that what I'm saying, I'll never do, but she just listens to me. And then there are other times when she's talking back and forth with me about a particular subject, but we talk. In a survey conducted by Focus on the Family, respondents were asked, what was the greatest problem affecting your marriage? And for men and women, the biggest problem by far was lack of communication. And here's why this is. In her book, The Female Brain, Dr. Luann Brizendine tells us that a woman uses 20,000 words per day while a man uses about 7,000, right? Boop, 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 boop. Warning lights are going off, right? This is a problem. Well, that exposes part of the problem of communication in marriage. Just, just think about it for, for one moment. The, the average man who speaks 7,000 words being married to the average woman who speaks 20,000 words. She's, a lot of women are home, and, and especially you young mothers who are home with young children, and they're not conversing back and forth to you. And you don't use very many of your words in a day. And on the other hand, your husband, who, you know, he's maybe out in the workplace, he's a sales guy, he's on the phone, he's talking to people. By the time he gets home at six o'clock, guess what? They're gone. He's used 6,977 of those words. He's got 23. Use them carefully, right? On the other hand, his wife, he flings open the door at six o'clock. She is raring to go because she's got 19,792 words left, right? 
In thriving marriages, husbands and wives talk. They talk. In failing marriages, they only talk about things that are necessary, and oftentimes those conversations end in arguments. Husbands, let me talk to you for just a second. Just talk to your wives. Just speak to your wives. All right? I'm a verbal person, right? I mean, I get paid to talk, right? So I, I don't, I, Dinah never has to wonder what I'm thinking. Uh, sometimes she'd like to just rather wonder rather than have me, have her, me tell her what I'm thinking. But I know most men, you, you, you're not talkers. You don't want to talk. I had a couple say that to me coming in this morning, and I said, oh, you don't know what you're waiting for when you get it here. And he kind of was proud of the fact that he just doesn't talk, okay? You need to talk. You need to share. I'll let you in on a secret. Sometimes you don't even have to talk. You can just listen, right? I've, I've been in conversations with Diana where she sat there and she's just talked. Believe it or not, I'm silent. I know. It's, she should take video, right, so she can show you. And I'm just listening. And, and later on after our conversation, she will say to me, thanks for, thanks for talking. I feel so much better. I learned this several years ago. I went, wow, that did not cost me anything to do that at all. No money was spent. We didn't even go to dinner. All we did was sit on the sofa. She talked. I just didn't talk. And yet she thinks we had a great conversation. What a scam. This is awesome. This is awesome. I love this, right? And so I have learned, not real well, but I'm learning that sometimes I just need to listen. Especially guys, if you are talkers and yappers and you're like me, that you got, I got a solution for everything. You give me three sentences, I'll tell you how we're going to fix that, right? I do that with our staff. All I need is three sentences, then you stop talking, and I will talk and tell you how we're going to finish that. Sometimes you just need to be quiet and let her talk, and you will get the proverbial whizzy button on the t-shirt. All right, we talk. Number four, thriving marriages, people are friends. People are friends. People are friends. They enjoy each other, right? Right, Bill? Liz? Right? You enjoy one another, right? They're friends. I hear people write on Facebook all the time, oh, it's our, it's our anniversary. I'm married to my best friend. And I'm going, no, no, I hang out with you. If you're best friends, like you don't have a clue what a best friend is. We like the idea of being best friends. We just don't want to work at being best friends. What do best friends do? Best friends do stuff that they would never do on their own, but they do because you're my friend, right? That's what we do in marriage. Doesn't mean that we have everything in common. I, sometimes I just want to, I'll just say it, I just want to throw up sometimes when I read some people and they go, oh, well, we ran, out, ran 26 miles today together and, and then we went and we paddled a canoe for 42 miles and then we went out and we had sushi because we both love sushi too and we do all these things and you're going, really? Because like none of that sounds fun to me and if my wife liked that, we would not be friends. <laughs> it's amazing to me that that's friendship. And so we think, well, I can never be real friends with her or with him because we enjoy different things. That is so not true, all right? I'm gonna tell you what I did about a year ago, year and a half ago. Diana said to me, she said, I've never asked you this before, but I saw on TV that Barry Manilow. <laughs> I wanted to say it with a straight face, I really did. <laughs> Barry Manilow's going to be in town. He's going to be at the RBC Center. And, <laughs> and I'd really like to go. And at first I thought, Barry Manilow, like, is he still alive even? She said, I'd really like to go. And I'm like, 
I'd like to get both eyeballs gouged out. Have you take my fingernails and take them all the way down to the... I mean, I'm thinking, why would we do that? And then I thought to myself, self, this would be a great thing to do because you're friends with her. And you can go and do this and, and she'll enjoy this and, and, and that's what friends do. So I called friends to say, please go with me. Like, I don't want to go alone to this concert. Some of them are here this morning. They laughed at me. They mocked me. They scorned me. They would not go. But I, I bought the tickets and I went to Barry Manilow. And not only did I go, but I did this whole thing right here too. It was waving the glow stick back and forth. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And you know why I did it? Because I love her and we're friends. And sometimes friends do things because we're friends that I don't necessarily enjoy, but you enjoying that brings me enjoyment. On the other hand, failing marriages, the couples simply live in the same household, but they're two ships that pass in the night. That's a Barry Manilow song now that I think about it. How's it go? We're two ships, sing it with me now, that pass in the night and we smile. We don't smile, we do something else. But anyway, that's what, that's what people that are in failing marriages, that's what they do. They have different interests, schedules, and they make no allowance for the other person. If you want to be in a thriving marriage, be friends. Number five, forgiveness in a thriving marriage is normal. Forgiveness is normal. I'm so glad that I live in a home with a wife that I know will forgive me. Now, I try not to take advantage of that either. But forgiveness is normal. There's anything that I'm going to do, and, and by the way, I, do, I think I mean anything that she wouldn't forgive me for because she recognizes how much a holy God has forgiven her. And every once in a while, I have to do the same thing. I require a lot more forgiveness than she does but every once in a while, I have to do that same thing because I recognize we are, we are living out the gospel. And the reality of the gospel is that I have been forgiven much, and so therefore I forgive. And in thriving marriages, that's what people do. They don't keep list and constantly bring them up to one another, their failings. In failing marriages, each other's rights and expectations are expected to be met. And when they're not, it leads to anger and resentment. And here's the truth of the matter. Even in great marriages, there's going to be conflict. Two sinful people living together are always going to produce conflict. But there's always forgiveness in a thriving marriage because they realize how much they've been forgiven by a holy God. Lastly, in thriving marriage, commitment is for life. They bought into the idea that marriage is for life. We're going to do this thing forever. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health so long as we both shall live. In thriving marriage, the D word is never mentioned. We don't ever talk about divorce. Now, I, I have a pretty good understanding of, of divorce in Scripture, and I think I, we have a biblically-based, we go by biblically-based principles with relation to divorce. And certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made exception for divorce in the case of adultery. While he made an exception for it, he did not say, if your spouse commit adul commits adultery, go get a divorce the next day. 
There's other principles that come in mind there too. Forgiveness is one of them that we just talked about. And certainly when Paul was talking to the church at Corinth, he talked about the abandonment, the leaving of an unbelieving spouse and how the believer is no longer bound. But I'm going to tell you this, while, while there is, are exceptions made for divorce in Scripture, it is not God's plan. God designed marriage to be for life. And if you're in a thriving marriage, commitment is for life. You're going to have problems, but the D word is never mentioned. In failing marriages, however, and this is where some of you are living right now, it's always a threat by one or the other or both. If you don't do this, if you don't meet my expectation, just remember, I do have this option. That's what happens in failing marriages. If I don't get what I want or I don't like what I have anymore, then I'll just move on after all. And I've heard this more than I care to admit. After all, God wants me to be happy. Well, contrary to some popular preachers that are invading the internet, God's not most consumed about your happiness. God's concerned about his holiness. Okay? You made the decision to marry that person. And except for extenuating circumstances, where the Bible speaks to your option for divorce, you are to live with that person until death do you part. And you are to choose to be happy. And even if you choose not to be happy, God's not sitting up in heaven going, just want you to be happy, so do whatever you need to do. If you bought into that lie, and by the way, I have pastors and their wives that have told me those words. If you buy into that lie, your life is headed like this anyway. If you think God's most concerned about your happiness to the exception of his holiness. Here's the big idea this morning. Thriving marriages take work. God made that clear right from the start. They take work. In fact, turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 2. This is where it all begins. God creates the world. He creates everything in it in chapter 1. And interestingly enough, after he creates things, he goes, that's good. You know? He sees a bird flying around and he goes, woohoo, my creativity, that's awesome. He sees the trees and he goes, those are beautiful, that is good. He keeps saying that over and over and over again until he gets to chapter 2 and verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is fascinating to me. I wish we could stop right here. And this is where we should just exegete this text. We should really build it out, right? This is really cool. So God allows the animals to come in front of Adam. And he says, name them. Just name them. Whatever you think, you know, when you see them, just name them. And so the aardvark comes forward and he goes, looks like an aardvark. He shall be called an aardvark. All the way down to the zebra. He's got black and white. A zebra, of course. He's a zebra, right? And the whole purpose of that exercise is found in verse 18. God said it wasn't good that a man should be alone. And so I'm going to find him companionship. And so he's looking for a helper, a companion. Now, you would have thought that when he got to the golden retriever, right? He'd have looked at the golden retriever and gone, <clears throat> you are a golden retriever. And the, oh, you'll be my companion, this is awesome. You'll be my friend, you know, man's best friend. And we will walk along and we'll be great, right? No, that wasn't good enough. The problem was that none of these animals were made in the image of God as Adam had been, and none of them could communicate with him. 
And so there wasn't a helper that was found that was suitable for him. So what does God do? Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I was reading a commentary this week and the theologian was saying, man, can you imagine what this woman must have been like? There's no sin yet. She's beautiful. Everything that Adam could have ever imagined with a helper, with a companion, God had provided for him and he called her woman. Look at verse 24 now. God says, this is what marriage looks like. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So God created marriage and then he said, the husband should leave his father and mother and should cleave to his wife and they should be one flesh. And that's in summary, God's laws for marriage. And it sounds really easy, doesn't it? In fact, it really sounds kind of fun to me. In, a, in simple, this is Brian's simple language. If I ever write a paraphrase of the Bible, this is what I write. Leave your parents, passionately pursue this person that you're attracted to, and enjoy each other physically. Sounds great to me. Sounds pretty easy, actually. That's all great, but here's what we need to understand. And, and by the way, I had never seen this until just this week, which just tells you that as many times as you've studied a passage of Scripture, study it again. You'll squeeze something else out of it. The word that is translated in your text, some of your text, hold on to or cleave, it does mean what I had thought that it meant. There is a Hebrew word there, and one of the, one of the definitions is that it means to be cemented or glued together. An alternate definition in that same list of that word means this. Get this, write this down. This will be worth the trip here this morning. To pursue with all of your energy. Isn't that awesome? I was praying with a couple after the first service and we were talking about this and I said, isn't it great that God, before there was sin in the world, this is before there, there's no sin. Like Adam looks like a million bucks. He's got the six pack abs. He's kind of walking around. He doesn't have any clothes on, right? He's naked as a jaybird. Which, by the way, I always wondered what jaybirds, why is a jaybird, what is a jaybird and why is he naked? I've always wondered that, but he's walk. he is a, specimen to be viewed. And you can imagine, you can imagine Eve. She looks like a million bucks or more, right? There's no sin. Everything's great. And in spite of that, as God's giving his design for marriage, he's saying, you got to leave your parents and then you have to passionately pursue with all of your energy, this person. He says that before sin. How much more? Would we have to do that after sin, after they fall in chapter three? According to God's plan, then marriage takes energy. You have to work at it. And I would say to you, if you get nothing else this morning, this is why most marriages that are failing are failing. And it is because of this, because we stop working at it. We get to the point where we go, hey, I thought this thing was just going to be, you know, hey, that we would just kind of be madly in love and that this would be effortless throughout the years until death do us part. And I thought if I showed up on Valentine's Day and I had that heart shaped of chocolates, you know, with some of those things in there and gave her a card, you know, as I stood in line, took the last card, you know, at Walgreens or whatever. I thought that if I did that, that this thing would just work. And now I'm realizing that no. It's going to take work. 
Like, I got to work at this every single day. And I think God's sitting up in heaven going, duh. I mean, before sin, I told Adam and Eve, you have to pursue with all of your energy this person. And then there's some of us that buy into the idea that we just lose that loving feeling and we think, man, we could never get this back. Well, you should read Revelation 2 when the writer is talking to the church at Ephesus and he's talking about the love and the love that they used to have for Jesus and, and that they have fallen so greatly. And then he says this, remember the love that you used to have, repent of what caused you to lose that love and then start doing the things that you once did before. A lot of us, that's what we need to start doing. We need to start doing the things that we once did before. Because here's what I know. All you married couples here today, there's a reason why you chose him. There's a reason why you chose her. All right? Nobody put a gun to your head and said, you will marry. Probably don't have many arranged marriages in here, right? You chose that person. There was something that attracted you to that person when you stood up in front of a pastor or somebody and you committed yourself to them for the rest of your life. There was something attractive about them. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember what that was. And then I want you to passionately pursue. Go after that with all of your energy. That's one of God's laws for marriage. And when you ignore it, your marriage will not thrive. It will ultimately fail. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning and you may be thinking, it's too late for my marriage. You don't understand, Brian. We come here every Sunday morning and we sit here and we smile at the people and we just sit next to each other. We tolerate each other. This is as close as we'll be the whole week. You don't know what's happened. You don't know what's gone on. You don't know what she's done. You don't know what he did on that business trip. You don't know what he said to me. You don't know what she said to me. You don't know how she's made me feel. Too much has happened. And you can't imagine yourself actually even loving that person again. Time and time you've forgiven them, and yet time and time they go back and they do exactly what you forgave them for. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I'd like for you to hear the story of a couple in our church that not too long ago was in the exact same place that some of you are I want you to watch their story. Mm. You think after you see it three or four times, you just go, I just love that story. I had a guy come up to me after the first service, and he said, um, Tim, he said, that was me. He said, if I'd have done what Tim did, I wouldn't have lost my marriage. And he sobbed like a baby as we prayed. And I'm thinking about how many more are out there and you're on the precipice right now like Tim was. And you just need Jesus. I want to tell you this. There's nothing that's happened in your life or your marriage that God can't forgive. That's what's really cool. <laughs> I said this at the first service. That's why I do what I do. Because I, I can give you hope. Nothing that you've done that's, that's not forgivable. You might very well be feeling like your marriage is falling apart and you just you simply you can't go on anymore, but God is a God who knows how to heal and he knows how to restore. In fact, Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He said, but he, but he said to me, God said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God created this idea of marriage 
for men and women to enjoy it as the most significant relationship that two people can experience on the planet. But it doesn't happen unless you purposely, energetically pursue that person. You work hard at it. And so maybe today, maybe today the point of action for you is just to simply say, I give up, I can't do this on my own, I've, I've blown it, and, and I need some help. I want you to know this as we close this series. There's nothing that's happened in your life or in your marriage that God can't forgive, that God can't restore. You might be feeling that your marriage is falling apart and you can't do it anymore. But God is a God who knows how to heal and how to restore. In fact, I think Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. This is God's idea, this marriage thing. And it's hard. It takes a lot of work. But I'm telling you, if you will work at it, God will do incredible things and you will enjoy the relationship that he has created you to have. And I want you to know that I want that for myself. I don't want to just survive in marriage. As Chrissy said, life is too short just to survive. I want to thrive. I want that for myself and I want that for each one of my friends here at Northwest.